Thursday, April 27th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a Race and American Politics event, an exclusive film screening of National Geographic documentary films LA-92. The film looks back at the riots that followed the acquittal of the four LA police officers charged with beating Rodney King 25 years ago. Following the screening, HKS Associate Professor Leah wright Rigur moderated an audience discussion on historical and political themes presented in the film. Legina Gauze, Ash Center Democracy Postdoctoral Fellow, and Treva Lindsay, Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University, Research for Equity for Women and Girls of Color Fellow at the Hutchinson Center, provided responses. This event was co-sponsored by the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, the HKS Diversity Committee, the HKS Office for Student Diversity and Inclusion, and the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. I'd like to do a couple of things right now. Uh, the first thing is that I'm going to do is introduce just our speakers uh, very briefly. Um, and then I'm going to ask our speakers to um, give us a little bit of uh, just a response to what we've seen. And then I think what we're going to do is open it up to um, Q&A and even, uh, which is, this is kind of rare in Kennedy School tradition, but even maybe a little bit of commentary. Um, so with that, first person I'd like to uh, introduce is Legina Goss, who's a democracy postdoctoral uh, post fellow at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Harvard Kennedy School. Her research interests include the representation and non-electoral participation of mar marginalized communities. Uh, and her current book project, The Advantage of Disadvantage, Legislative Responsiveness to Collective Action by the Politically Marginalized, she explores when US legislators are likely to respond to protesters in their congressional districts, AKA Maxine Waters. Um, so next year, Legina will be an associate professor of political science at the University of San Diego in California. Assistant. Assistant, all right. Not um, there yet. Early promotion. Next up, we have uh, Dr. Treva Lindsay, who's an associate professor of women's uh, gender and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University, uh, and a, research, uh, a researcher for um, Equity for Women, Girls, and Girls of Color Fellow here at the Hutchins Center at Harvard uh, uh, for African American Research. Her research and teachers in interests include African American women's history, black popular and expressive culture, black feminisms, hip hop studies, critical race and gender theory, and sexual politics. Her first book, which recently uh, came out, is called Colored No More, New Negro Womanhood in the Nation's Capital. Uh, and it came just actually just, just came out, so congratulations <laughs> on that. Uh, she's the co-editor of a forthcoming collection on the future of black popular culture studies uh, through NYU Press. Um, so just one little bit of contextual, I think, uh, information that might be, might be kind of uh, useful for us to think about. Um, the LA riots happened in April 1992. Um, a year after that, in 1993, we actually find out that the four police officers in the case are retried. Two are uh, convicted and two are acquitted. Um, the rollout for it is uh, actually quite different. It's done uh, 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 covertly. Um, media recognizing the role that they played in um, kind of, I think, stimulating some of the, um, some of the uh, riots actually takes a very somber, pretty um, solemn tone to the rollout. Um, Rodney King later goes on to get about $4 million uh, settlement um, from the city of Los Angeles and the LAPD. And then um, Daryl Gates, who we saw kind of the, the chief of police, uh, resigns um, after the end of the riots in 1992. But I think the important thing to kind of contextualize this are two things uh, to think about that emerges in this moment. 
One, the 1992 LA riots happened 27 years after the 1965 Watts riots. Um, and so they think this is one of the reasons why the footage at the very end is so powerful. Um, the other part of this is that the LA Commission on the riots comes out with this report, and if anyone wants to see it, I'm happy to share it. Several copies of it, I'm happy to share it. But comes out with a report that essentially says that the causes of the riots, the root causes of the riots, are nearly identical to the root causes of the 1965 riots. That virtually nothing has changed between 1965 and 1992 within the communities affected. The one thing that has changed is that this is the nation's first multiracial riot. Um, I think one of the things that gets erased, uh, although the, the film brings it out a little bit, is just um, actually how multiracial uh, the riots were, including Latinos who are a minority at the time, but now in this area of Los Angeles are in fact the majority. So there are, very, there are a lot of shifting kind of politics that are going on there, but at, at, the, at the very end of things, um, the root causes for the riots are still very much the same. So with that, I would love to kind of have just um, some responses from uh, Lagina and from Treva. And why don't we start off with Treva? Yeah. Sure, um, thank you. That is a lot to take in, the documentary. Um, so one of the things that I was most struck by was this recentering of Latasha Harlins in the context of the riots. I think we often think about the LA riots directly being related to Rodney King as this kind of signature figure. And obviously, after the um, verdict of not guilty, that's a very kind of direct thing. But as you hear in the film and you see in the footage that they've collected, that Latasha's name is said so often as one of these kind of catalysts within this context, right? And it also brings to bear the particular tensions that were extant well before this, obviously, right? There's just like, this is the spark that ignites a lot of these conversations and then what we see in terms of the riots, but between the African-American community and the Korean community. And that you see Korean businesses were the primary, were primarily targeted, we break it down by who owns what businesses that are targeted by that. And to understand that is not only to understand Latasha Harlins in this context, but these greater kind of simmering tensions around who owns what in certain neighborhoods, how people of color are often pitted against each other in systems of poverty, in systems of marginalization, and this idea of a scarcity of resources, right? A scarcity of opportunity. And so in this moment, seeing that there's a commission on black and Korean relations, it's so important to think about. Um, it's also important to think about it as we think about state violence that is largely pivoted around men, that a young black woman is so central to the mobilization and how people are responding to this moment of state violence and police brutality. Because um, even though it's not um, the police who kill Latasha Harlins, it is a judge who's seen as part of this larger framework of the criminal justice system who actually defines um, the act as did, did um, sorry, Sun Jun Da act inappropriately? Yes. Um, is it understandable? Yes. Right? This was her response. So the framing of a killing of a 15-year-old girl as she's walking out of the store is framed as inappropriate. And that kind of moment and getting to witness that, so this is also an interesting moment in terms of media and how we then process these high-profile cases. Right? The next kind of big one like this, of course, would be the OJ trial. 
um, that we see in this kind of 24-hour loop. And of course, another racial, um, very racialized, highly racialized context in which we see that. And that comes out of the moment of the LA uprising, riots, rebellion, all of these words are very politicized as to how you define what happened. And getting to see this and watch this, there's so many people who are like, where were you when the verdict was read? That, that, that's one of these kind of key media moments. Watch, we get a lot of footage, but not in this kind of looping 24-hour kind of coverage of what's happening now. So there's also a sensationalization and a recuperating of this moment of saying, what are the connections, what hasn't changed, but the technologies and the violence and the technologies of violence that we see in 1992, I think are really important and are shown very well in this documentary. Sure. And uh, one thing I think to, to add on there as well, um, I thought it was actually quite brilliant that they, the filmmakers start off um, a little bit by talking about the Gulf War yes. push coming out. And in fact, this is right around the period of time when the 24-hour news cycle launches. CNN gets its start through, um, or really popularity through, um, two things. Right. So the first is the Gulf War and really broadcasting, you know, uh, drones um, hitting buildings um, uh, and people watching it continuously on loop. Um, but then later on, the OJ trial. But in between that, it's the 92 um, LA riots, and so these things are played on loop constantly and consistently. Um, so really thinking about kind of um, that, um, but also thinking about what happens um, in a nation in the aftermath of war, right? So even a war that feels as, um, uh, where people feel as disconnected as the Gulf War, right? We see that a number of, uh, a number of the commentary, uh, the police officers and um, uh, the National Guard that come in talk about their experiences with war um, and with engagement with enemy combatants, right? And so what that experience is like in that moment, particularly as it plays out on a national media uh, stage. But, Legina, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So this is really loud. Um, <laughs> so one thing that I wanted to talk about it or think about is, um, so the comments by President Bush about how this wasn't about civil rights and how this isn't a protest, this isn't, something we should recognize as something we should respond to their claims. And then also the question of, um, that gets raised in a lot of these situations of, why would you destroy your own community? And what is it that makes you want to destroy your, your own space? And I think these are really important questions because you'd have to think about more than just the symptom. So a lot of people look at a lot of riots and say like, that happened, those people are lawless, those people are criminals, and they should have done those things. But also think about the preconditions that created those types of circumstances. So you had a lot of unemployment, a lot of joblessness, a lot of frustration and hopelessness that were brought about not only by the, the, the verdict, but also by just the daily conditions that people were, were living in. And then bringing back, going back to the point about how a lot of these businesses were attacked, most of them being Korean-owned, the communities that, that these, the people were occupying didn't seem one that they were a part of. They had no agency in it. They existed in it, but they weren't owners in it. They weren't participants that were respected in it. So it was a point where they were destroying things out of frustration because they were destroying things that were, they, they, were, they used the, the, the looting as a way to symbolically display their frustration with the overall system. Right? And it's also important to recognize that it's not that 
these things don't matter to informing how people think about things. So um, looking at President Bush prepare for his, uh, his speech was kind of frustrating because he was kind of doing it as a, this is kind of what I have to do. I have to say something. I don't really connect to what's going on on the other side of the country, but I do want to make a statement so it appears that I'm addressing the issues and the concerns. And I'm going to tell you that we're going to do this Department of Justice thing. And I think, um, so this statement seemed a little shorter than, I wanna, than ones I've seen before, or maybe there was another one where he talks about how just listen to the justice system, justice system works, there's processes put in place where things are be connect, um, corrected, um, and the federal government has been like keeping an eye on this and we're gonna do things about it. But it's not clear that the federal government would have actually done something had the riots not occurred or had people not been as frustrated as they were to begin with. It's also not clear that if the riots, well, I don't, let's not go that far. But the riots actually brought a lot of attention to a lot of issues that were happening. And a lot of people also ask, like, why now, right? The Latasha Harlands didn't end in violence in the same way that Rodney King did. And so people were frustrated with, so things have been horrible for a long time. Why are you getting out of line now and not before? Which is probably not the question that should be asked, right? The question should be more on how do we actually address these real issues that are affecting communities so that these things don't happen again in the future. Um, so it's really interesting in kind of looking at where people place the blame and how they think about correcting those issues and whether those, um, those analyses are correctly targeted um, in a lot of these situations. Yeah, um, and so one thing I think to, to think about before we open it up to, to Q&A as well, um, I think that this emerges at a moment, um, uh, this really emerges at a moment where um, people are very much reacting um, or responding to conditions that have been long-standing, right? And it's not just, say, uh, unemployment. And the unemployment rates, for example, in the communities that are affected are sky high, particularly for young black men, who it turns out are the vast majority of participants in, um, in uh, the, the more physical aspects of the rioting. Um, but it's also that residents pay two times as much, right, for everyday necessary household items as opposed to people who live in wealthier and more affluent areas, right? Um, they are going to segregated schools, right, that don't have um, other resources. I think uh, Treva um, and Legina both mentioned scarcity of resources. Um, and so there's an idea about resenting, I think, the system that you're in. Um, we begin to see, I think, the, uh, the signals um, emerge in pop culture actually Absolutely. earlier right. um, than uh, the appearance of kind of uh, rioting, right? So um, I think on the, the East Coast version of this, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing comes out in 1989. We see a resurgence in popularity around the, both the Nation of Islam, um, but also uh, a couple months after the riots, uh, we see the premiere of Malcolm X, right? Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Um, but even, we also see, say, Ice Cube and Death Certificate, right, where he makes a song about Latasha Harlins that talks about kind of doing violence to Korean Americans um, in Los Angeles, right? We see NWA, the emergence of NWA. We see, um, I think, several films like Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, right, mm -hmm. South Central. So there's this kind of whole um, kind of 
um, um, language and culture that emerges that even predates um, the riots that really is giving kind of insight into what we're seeing in that moment. Um, one other thing that I'll mention, too, is that the film does an excellent job, I think, of capturing the nuances of um, uh, black class divisions. Um, and so you'll see this. I think, one, you saw generational differences with, say, the older man at the end who was crying and saying, we didn't have black power for this. Black, this is not black power, right? Juxtapose those with those, uh, those images of the young black men saying, right, this is for Rodney, uh, Rodney King, this is for Latasha Harlins. Um, but then we also see, I think, a middle-class um, kind of uh, respectable idea of what protest means, particularly in the people who are protesting, who are saying, no, we're being nonviolent, we're right. behaving, we are not looting, we're doing the right thing. And then a distinction being drawn, not just by outsiders, right, white community outsiders or, or Korean or Latino community outsiders, but black insiders between good, behave, well-behaved black people and the bad, rotten apples who are doing these horrific things, as opposed to ideas of general humanity. Um, so I think what we'd like to do now is open it up to question and answers. I, I know um, because this session is being recorded, we would love to have you speak into a microphone when you ask your question. Um, and I think we can, the microphone is up here, but we have questions. There's two. Oh, and there's one up there with Jesse, too. All right, so why don't we start off right here. Thank you so much. This is really fascinating. Uh, something that we all know, but is wide open, and, and all of the rage and, and the problems that our communities have, and all of that stuff. I am thinking about someone that you kind of didn't address there, and this was uh, a love. Uh, Eula Love. Yeah, Eula Love. Yes. And, and what's fascinating about Eula Love's case is that she ties two people that are co protagonists in this from the extremes, Maxine Waters and Darrell Gates from the two extremes. And I, I don't know if you want to get into the details of her death uh, in front of her three kids uh, by Los Angeles police okay. and what happened subsequent to that, because I think that's important to kind of get a little background between 65 and 92 uh, that kind of gets kind of in between of, the, of what was happening as you were talking about, the unemployment, the disfranchisement, all of the issues that the community was having at the time. And then these forces going back and forth and getting the community aware of what was going on. And I would appreciate if you get, I, I have the facts, but if you want to get sure, into Sure, please, facts. go, I'm like. Well, I mean, I'm just, I, I know that she <laughs> I'm was. I'm like, give them a good. <laughs> very much, you should take it back, but okay. She was, uh, she was about my since age, you know, they came back, they came from different places. Uh, she, uh, this woman came from the south, uh, Maxine came from the middle, mi Midwest, and they have somewhat about the same kind of uh, situations. They had to work to really improve their lives and all of that stuff. Uh, this woman apparently uh, had someone coming into her house attempting to shut off the gas uh, because she owed the gas company $22. And she didn't have the money at the time, so she got into a scuffle with the representative from the gas company. And the gas company representative called the police. This woman went out to cast a check that she had to bring the money back so that she could give the money to this representative and things would be okay. Things escalated, two police officers arrived, and this is fascinating because one of them was black right. and one of them was white. And, and this goes into the whole blue 
mindset that once you join the blue, you're <laughs> part of the blue, regardless of your color and all of that sort of thing. Anyway, she got killed in front of her kids. And that's the bottom line. Yes. Community got anxious and back and forth, and a lot of other things happened since then. Yeah. I, I, I leave it back to you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for um, bringing you love into this. I think this is important because, once again, this older black woman, because we often think about these kind of state violence incidences as particularly kind of young men and these very fatal encounters. But in this instance, the community really does respond in a particular way. Eula Love is also something you actually, I didn't see it here, but in other footage, you'll see her name also among buildings that's being sprayed in representation, but that notion of someone coming to turn off your gas, right? Someone to come to turn off a utility that is needed um, in the home, and that this escalates over $22, right? That this woman essentially dies over $22, and then this framing of how we get to think about policing and what policing looks like in these communities, what is that protecting or serving? How does that actually enact our notions of what law and order is, right? So, are we protecting the interest of property? Are we protecting the interests of the state? Um, she's certainly not protected in this moment. Her kids are certainly not protected as um, she's killed in front of them. But it then becomes illustrative of larger kind of policing and surveillance issues in those communities. So the kind of militarized response, when you mentioned the Gulf War, this is also the era of the militarization of police. So you have things like the battering ram that are busting up into neighborhoods, right, to find drug users, drug offenders, and comments, which are these tanks that kind of bash in the door, um, which can arm, injure anyone who's in that vicinity. Right? You see helicopters. The helicopter's ubiquitous in every hood film. <laughs> of the, you just see it, you hear it, that noise is ubiquitous. But it becomes this kind of thing. It's Yes, in, in some instances during the riot, you see it as the, the media when the police actually evacuate and are not in the area. But then police using that to track people, these lights that go through your homes and seeing that. So this constant notion of surveillance and new technologies that allow for that. What kind of weapons police officers are afforded to be mobilized in these communities. So it is the convergence of a lot of these different things and the response of this community and, and this frustration. And, Thinking of OJ, these are also the moments where the kind of attorneys and names and characters that we then see become very well known, whether we're talking about Johnny Cochran, um, who's known for his representation of people in cases of police brutality, police misconduct. Um, as you said, Maxine Waters. These are names that become really resonant and familiar, but also in this 24-hour news cycle get framed as kind of race baiters, right? That we're making this about race. Um, in these constants and not understanding poverty, race, the intersection of this class um, generation, as you mentioned, in this moment. So it's this, I always say, this collision moment that happens and is very particular to LA in certain ways. Because like, why not other cities that also had these kinds of police dynamics, which is pretty much any city in this moment. But the multiracial dynamic, how LA is spread out, the structure and the geography of the city lends itself to this as well. Um, what happens in terms of gang culture um, here and how that's dealt with, um, the tough on crime, how guns are accessible, all of these things play into that. So thank you for bringing up you. One thing I'll also mention too is that something that comes out of, so a couple of things come out of the report in the commission on the LA um, riots. One is that, um, there's a, a music festival. Actually, one of my students from LA pointed this out to me, um, that there's this big 
big multicultural music festival that actually comes out of right. the LA riots um, as kind of this you know, kumbaya <laughs> peace moment. Um, but then many of the other suggestions actually don't go into effect. Um, but uh, the increased surveillance of um, particularly of, of, uh, young black and brown men actually increases um, in the aftermath of the LA riots whereby um, gang activity becomes uh, correlate, uh, becomes associated with black, mas black and brown masculinity. Right? So it goes from being, okay, these are the markers of being a gang member to if you are black and brown, you are a gang member. Right? So there's, there's a ramping up of kind of uh, the LA, people may have heard of the LA gang task force um, in the aftermath of this moment. One other fun fact that I'll mention is that for those of you who have seen the, the documentary, the O.J. Simpson documentary, 30 for 30, um, you'll actually realize that uh, Johnny Cochran gets his strategy to move the venue for O.J. Simpson <laughs> yes. from this case. Right. right. Because he also realized, one, he realizes if I can change the jury and if I can get black women on the jury, right, I can, I'm that much closer to acquitting yep. my client. Um, but then also, too, he recognizes that the city has not gotten over um, uh, the Ronnie, uh, Rodney King uh, ver uh, decision and verdict and subsequent riots. Right. So this becomes proxy um, for that. And it becomes one of the things that obviously in retrospect, and I think a lot of people criticize Marsha Cochran, that she just didn't see it, right? That she just didn't she understand. She still doesn't <laughs> in a lot of ways, unfortunately. But there's a way where she's like, I always had such a good relationship with black women. So I was very surprised to hear their readings of me in this moment um, and their readings of this. And I dealt with them specifically in domestic violence cases and all of this and really missing these historical tensions, um, the ways in which, again, that black women in particular were also brutalized and affected by the ramping up of mass incarceration, police brutality, how um, um, drugs and were affecting the community in ways that weren't just about policing and criminalizing, but really seeing the impact of that. And all of that goes into the O.J. Simpson moment. And there was just this incredible, willful almost, kind of blind spot until they, you know, been put. I think it's also yeah. interesting to think about, so Daryl Gates, the police chief, um, <laughs> talks about how, well, before this, talked about how prepared the city was for another riot and how, <laughs> he really didn't expect this to happen because they'd had so many community policing efforts. They had DARE, they had police living communities, they had all of these positive things that there was really no indication of what was going on, which kind of is very interesting when you think about kind of um, how communities think about their, well, how someone who's in a position where he's supposed to be accountable to a community that he cares about has a, such a, a complete disconnect and understanding what's going on. But then also thinking about, so the selection of the jurors, right? So um, he also made a comment about how the jurors in Simi Valley, people keep criticizing that it was an all-white jury. So, but the thing about the jury was that there were no brown um, people of color, black or brown people in the district who hadn't already made up their minds. So they needed a juror who had, who was able to, to think uh, critically about the situation, which is very interesting when you think about, like, everyone had seen the video, right? So everyone had made up some opinion about it. Everyone was biased in some way, but they were looking for a particular type of bias in making this argument. 
and one that kind of fit in with their narratives of what they understood as the community and, and what they understood of Rodney King as a person, as a human, or not in this situation. So obviously 25 years have passed since the LA riots and we're still seeing a lot of the same problems. One of the big things that's changed is obviously the technology of documentation is so much more widespread now. But one problem continues to be consistent, which is that proof is not enough. Um, and that kind of connects to the point that you just brought up where, and sorry, I'm kind of processing some emotions as I talk about this, but obviously like, the way that our legal system is set up there's the idea that what constitutes critical thinking is the ability to sort of look at something without having had an initial response. But if the way that a document such as a video functions is like an object of truth, for example, is that like that the video contains the truth in and of itself and to see the video is to know what happened, you know, how do we kind of break out of this like discursive loophole by which, you know, we can have video evidence of the thing happening but you know, in terms of legal justification, that video evidence is insufficient because it's just a—it's like a pattern that keeps repeating itself, and repeating itself, and repeating itself. And obviously, technologies of documentation aren't enough to break the cycle. That's a—that's <laughs> a so challenging. One one thing I'll, I'll mention before I, I turn the floor over to Truva and Legina is that um, one of the things um, that I think. They, the filmmakers do very well at the end, and they're they're very explicit in that they're trying to draw connections to today, right? But they bring up that 1964 um, moment where, and they kind of have this moment where they're paralleling it, saying, "Well, we have no evidence, right? We have no visual evidence. We have no documented evidence," and they're showing evidence up on the screen. Um, and I think part of what they're trying to say is that, in fact, this is a very old problem, and that the technological aspects of it has been a very old problem. And for a very long time, it has never been enough. That um, even before we have viral videos, before we have body cam footage, before we have Facebook Live, that we still have problems when you have you know, 500 eyewitness accounts. Um, and part of what I, you know, I think, um, I teach a class here on um, race riot and backlash in America. And one of the things, we, this constantly comes up as a problem in the class, I think one of the things that I encourage my students to do is to, pos to, to actually flip the positionality and think about what is it that makes the visual aid a problem. And part of it is when, how we think about um, the license that we give to authority figures and kind of, uh, uh, people of the law, right, so the state. Where in this case, it is very, very, very difficult and has long been very difficult to prosecute agents of the state, particularly agents of the state who are tasked with right, protecting people with a high element of danger. Right? So that kind of line that we see throughout has been, um, that has been pretty consistent, has been police officers saying, I feared for, for my, my life. life. <laughs> because that is right. What do you need, I think, and, and there have been several kind of Supreme Court cases around this, where we have a very different standard for um, state officers as opposed to regular old Joe Schmoes on the street. So. Yeah, I, I, I would echo that. I, that, that fearing, that reasonable fear, right, of your life and what that means. I've noticed myself in this moment, I actually had to look down during the Rodney King beating in the video and also the Latasha Harlan's murder because 
we are now incessantly bombarded by images and spectacular of, 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 of black death at the hands of the state. Um, you can go on any device and see it on loop. Um, and, and because we know, so we think about the role of the media in, in galvanizing in certain ways. So a lot of people made connections in the movement for black lives to Emmett Till moment, right? And Mamie Till being like, I want the coffin, an open, right, an open casket. I want the world to see what happened to my son and how that moved people. And there's a question in this, and this, there's a language that's used in the film when someone's talking about the inhumanity of these cops, when it's the guy who has the like, treats for the cops, and he's like, how inhuman of you right, to do that. And what it means that for me to see these things on loop and that kind of desensitization, that we actually can create other narratives, even with video evidence of something, because we need to believe in certain Right? We need to believe in law and order or protecting and serving. That this can't just be a problem. It can't be systemic. It can maybe be bad apples. It can maybe be something that got out of control. Um, what happened before the video started? Um, in all of these instances, these questions, because there is this investment in authority. There is this investment in power that's very hard to dislodge from. Um, for a lot of people. And also understanding our systems as something that are deeply rooted, unfortunately, in anti-blackness. Um, and that doesn't necessarily require a white body to enact anti-blackness. When we talked about the black officer earlier, who can have the same thing when you're in law and order, who becomes criminalized? Who's seen as criminal? Who are the images that we see as criminals, as savage, as inhuman, that we can also desensitize and disorient ourselves from this viewing of humanity. And so thinking about a jury that imbibes anti-blackness too. Right? It's an, an imperfect way of thinking about this. This judge who can see the humanity of someone who has just shot a 15-year-old but hasn't really thought about the 15-year-old's humanity even in the way that she delivers her statement regarding the sentencing. Right? How humanity is shifted and reflected in that so that even videos if you already have an ingrained narrative about who certain people are within this, who certain players are, and what they petition to be, doesn't become proof of anything. Right? It becomes another version, another set of possibilities versus a truth or versus of that. And so that's been one of the kind of pushbacks within the movement for black lives about what does the good does it do to have body cameras if it doesn't matter what we see? If it doesn't matter what we see. And a lot of what we see, so a lot of people think of facts as like truth and there's no way to refute it, right? But there are very few facts that don't have, there has to be some type of processing and some type of um, context in, when you, in which you make sense of it and you connect it to kind of your understanding of the world. So there are a lot of people who look at police interactions and say, look, every interaction I had with a police officer has been great, so why wouldn't I give them the benefit of the doubt in the situation? That's not been my experience, right? And so a lot of people, so there's this big discussion over like, do we really care if there's video evidence or not, or should we be pushing for more video evidence? And I think the answer is yes, because if you can't document the problem, you can't fix it, right? And so, yes, we can add to the, to the number of instances that says like, this happened. There's, so there's been a pushback by police departments to record a lot or give disseminate information about police brutality or about complaints or about police deaths and there's been a reluctance of the government to to do these things so there's been a push towards you know let's document it ourselves right let's def de depend more on 
um, documenting these instances, but some of them we don't have evidence for. And, but having more evidence can add to kind of the, the pushback against people who say that like this is just a one-time situation that maybe got out of control, but I can kind of, I can think about ways where this, this is okay because it's not about, I don't know, a larger injustice, but a one-time kind of deviation. Other questions? I think there was a question right there. Hi, um, this is, I guess this is more of a, a comment than a question, but um, as an Asian American, kind of looking at, reflecting on the LA riots where Asian Americans were very much implicated in very interesting, contradictory, like very diff like difficult ways to navigate just generally. Um, I think one of my critiques of the film at this point is I feel that it still didn't really get into the interiority of that community generally because um, uh, as somebody born after the riots, <laughs> I still very much live in its shadow in a lot of different ways and that the major figures of the Asian American community right now lived through the riots and their views of race completely changed as a result of the riots. So generally, um, I feel like a conversation that is somewhat overlooked in the discussion of the riots is the discussion about the black community in relation to other immigrant communities, um, in relation to the Asian American community, that um, it doesn't really get a lot of reflection, it doesn't really get a lot of conversation because they're very difficult kind of things to navigate. So I think this has been the longstanding criticism of analysis of the, the mm -hmm. LA riots, which is that um, and, and new criticism is also starting to come out on this, but um, the big one has been that um, uh, Asian Americans in the narrative kind of get the short end of the stick, right? There's not really an, an, an assessment of um, Asian communities. There aren't really a lot of people who are writing um, about um, uh, Asian either participation or involvement or community in the LA riots, except as objects of rage or as from, from the perspective of um, um, uh, the uh, Latasha Harlan's murder, right? And we know that it's actually much more complicated. Mm -hmm. So for example, after um, one, of the, one of the first groups to actually lead kind of a you know, uh, solidarity movement right. is a group of young um, uh, Korean activists who hold a march um, in early May um, so talking about bringing together and having community relations and really talking about uh, inequality and, and uh, layers of inequality and what it means to be a Korean shop owner right, in relationship to um, black people who have been in this community for X amount of years. Um, the other aspect of, uh, I think, of the uh, of, uh, studies and analyses of the LA riots um, that has really just um, has, has been neglected has been... Um, kind of the, the role of Latinos, um, many of whom are migrants, but many of whom are actually um, native Los Angeles citizens, and in fact, the oldest of Los Angeles right. um, citizens. Um, so there's some good work, I think, on um, kind of, uh, I think it's, uh, gosh, I can't think of the name. It might be George uh, Sanchez. I think it's George Sanchez, um, who does some work on kind of, um, immigrant communities, um, uh, 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 multiracial communities, and kind of yeah. uh, things like that. But you're absolutely right. There's, I mean, there's just really a paucity of, of yeah. good stuff 
on this. I would also recommend, um, I can't remember the title now, but Lynn Itagaki just did one about LA, which specifically looks at kind of multiracial, but is homes in on Asian and Asian American and um, black relationships in this and really uses and thinks about representation. So she takes up Black Korean, um, which is Ice Cube song, which was, <laughs> it's a lot. Um, it's a lot. Um, but really takes that up and, and kind of unpacks a lot of what LA means in terms of race because LA is, um, you know, LA, New York, in different ways, right? These cities represent very, something very different in terms of racial breakdowns, right? It, it, it's not a black-white binary in doing this, right? But we do see how in these relationships, I think, white supremacy functions in very particular ways, right? And that means it operates on different axes and absolutely works on immigrant communities in particular ways, how undocumented folks show up in this and what stories we don't have because even of who can speak and who can't in these moments, who wants to be on camera and who can't be on camera, what, what is available to us through this kind of archive. So I think there is this kind of recovery project that I think folks are starting to do now, asking some of these questions and asking some of these longtime residents, what are their thoughts, who may have a little more security in this moment, well not in this moment, but um, a little more um, kind of critical distance and feeling of security relative to, to speak about those kinds of experiences. Because I think it is um, not only a neglected part, but it also speaks to, again, the kind of a very retrograde way of thinking about kind of the racial politics of the city and what is happening to understand what happened in LA and what can happen in other cities. So one thing I will say for um, those of you who, um, again, are, who may be interested in this, what the film actually does really well, I think, um, uh, as an introductory step, is introduces us to media sources that just have not been accessible or seen. Um, I, I think by now, at this point, I've seen every documentary that has come out on, on the LA riots. Much of that footage was brand new to yes. me. Um, they, and one of the things that they do quite well, though, is that they pull from archives from Radio Korea, um, which is also a, a really kind of rare thing. And I think um, there are a couple of moments in the films that I'm, I'm still trying to sit with, one of which is the woman who is saying, um, you know, this is America, get out. This is America, get out. And then the, the Hispanic man who says, look, I am American, and I'm going in your shop, and you need to shut up Chinese lady. And she goes, I'm not Chinese. And there's this, re I mean, it's, this really interesting moment, and there's another one where a Hispanic woman is crying and saying, this is not fair, this is America. And I think there's, there's a lot of unpacking to do that the film won't do for us, mm -hmm. um, but instead invites us to, to really think about and, and sit with. Yeah. Um, other questions? Hi, thanks so much. Um, so I was thinking, I think one of y'all named um, kind of like the masculinity of violence in, in the images that we looked at. And I'm thinking, I've been doing thinking a lot about masculinity and um, violence in, in riots in general. And I'm wondering if you have recommendations for work that kind of deal with the impact on like women, mothers, and children in these communities. So when like especially we know that, like young men in particular are most prone to like go out in the streets and like engage violently. Um, what happens when they go back into the home or when they come back into the community? Like what the fallout looks like? 
was going to say just a quick thing. Um, yeah. And this is not work that's on this. But I think about recently, um, and this was during the Baltimore uprising, um, the image that went viral of the mother who's like grabbing and getting her son and hitting him. Yeah. And they're like people applauding it. And they're people like, wait. I mean, there was this very kind of visceral response of, um, what do I do to keep my child safe in this moment, but also this kind of, this is good parenting and this is held up in a particular way of how we stop this. You shouldn't be participating in this act of um, uncivil disobedience. And then on the flip side, um, the likelihood that police violence would in some way impact this young man's life, right? Like trying to weigh all of the different ways that she's like, I'm just trying to keep him safe. And what it means to think about um, black women attempting to think about safety um, and issues of this with regards to just walking down the street and then now being in this place where there's an escalated police presence um, hasn't there. How do you stay safe? How do you not get arrested? Because you know the 11,000 arrests that happen as a result of the right are really important to put in context too, right? Who ends up arrested? Who, um, because as we see in the film, it's a multiracial group of people looting. Right? Um, there's the, the image where you see the white woman going through the parking lot and they're trying to get the interview with her. She's like, mm -mm. And she's like, you're not going to have my face on here. <laughs> so, but it's an interesting moment to think about going, uh, in, in addition to that, but who pays those consequences, right, from these moments? And we see this now with how we talk about the mothers of the movement in terms of Black Lives Matter, the way that that's become a, a thing, which is kind of scary um, on its own right. But, um, being deployed, that what is the relationship between families and kinship and this kind of perennial threat of state and state-sanctioned violence and how that plays out. So I think some of the work that's doing that are newer books that are talking about state and state-sanctioned violence in these more complicated ways. Um, we say, you know, often we think about mass incarceration through the lens of masculinity, we think about state violence through the lens of masculinity, and if we're thinking about women, or gender specifically, we're thinking about like the kind of indirect impact or familial impact, um, which is important, obviously, but not necessarily thinking about women being one of the fastest growing populations, women in prisons, or as victims of state violence, or people who die in police custody, um, um, being the youngest and the oldest in terms of police violence, the youngest being Ayanna Stanley Jones and the oldest being Pearly Golden. Um, in terms of this framing. So I think it's both important to think about that as impact and effect, but also thinking directly about the ramping up of how people of color, and particularly um, women of color, are directly um, impacted and affected by state and state sexual violence and are often the front lines of a lot of these protests. So a lot of the violence that happens in response to protests is happening to women. Um, and I think that gets missed because some of the more spectacular images often are images of masculine power coming up against masculine power, that being police force up against, you know, these kind of spectacular images of men raging. So we have time for one more question. Okay, yeah, Shaniqua. Hi, um, thanks so much for um, being here. Um, I don't know that like storefront businesses are like the symbol of capitalism, but just in thinking about people who have been oppressed and just don't have access to resources to live the American dream, if you will. And sorry, this is, if you have the answer. Um, but 
is it more have riots or forms of protest that include kind of trying to dismantle those structures been more effective than ones where you know we just kind of say this is not okay i'm not i'm not happy about this so are riots more effective than nonviolent protests i think it's one thing to even be you know, kind of in the streets and maybe violence breaks out, but it doesn't affect businesses. Like, maybe no one touches any of the businesses, but specifically riots that turn, that create some kind of loss for, for business owners. I mean, and I guess it depends on where that those monetary losses come. Is it in a community where people, where the people who are doing it live, or is it in someone else's community where it looks like this spilled over into a lot of communities where people, um, the people participating in the riots don't necessarily uh, make up those communities, but just trying to see if that gets more of a response to create some kind of change in those instances. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and one that I don't think does and maybe even can have a real response to. So one thing about thinking about what is a violent protest, so a lot of that depends on who's protesting and whether you want to consider that as violent or not. So in some cases, the fact that there's one person out of 500 who smashes a window makes that a violent protest, and all the police or all of the the conversation is want to focus about on this specific person and call it the whole thing violent. Other situations, um, there might uh, so I'm thinking about like Occupy protests, right? And so when there are violence at those, it was the violence of those few people who were violent, but everyone else was pretty peaceful. So the narrative was a lot different, right? So there's a perception of violence, and then there's actual violence. And it's hard to tease those out when they're very related to kind of how you want to perceive or interpret the event that's happening, right? And so um, property damage in and itself may matter, but it's also like who's doing the property damage and what property are they damaging? Because it's some property that may not be um, held in high esteem, then there may be less need to respond to it, but maybe if it's a, a monument that people care about or a building by like a figure that people really think is important, then that might prompt a different response, right? And so, the other part of the question was like, which is more effective? And that's also a, diff a difficult question because, so one reason, so I remember uh, when uh, the Charlotte protests happened and I was watching CNN and they said, it was like the second night. And so as they were covering it, they said, look, we're only gonna give about 10 minutes to this, but if it turns violent, we're gonna pay attention again, right? So violence has a way of, and the fact that it's sensationalizing the protest has a way of directing attention and awareness to things that maybe a nonviolent protest couldn't do. But it also doesn't tend to have a lot of the staying power that organized protests have and the, the ability of organized protests to continue to kind of put pressure on elected officials after the protest has subsided, um, has subsided. Um, in the way that a lot of these spontaneous riots or civil disturbances don't have because it's more of kind of a reaction than it is a, a show of strength or agency. So one thing that I'll, I'll say to that is that, um, to Legina's point, which is right on, um, is that um, violence and I think um, property damage and you know, all of these kinds of things, um, one, are generally our politicians see it as you know, the, the voice of the unheard, right? So 
this kind of thing. There's a lot of dramatic attention put to it. There's usually a commission or two or five. Um, but in the case, I think, of Los Angeles in particular, one of the, the shocking things is that if you look at the Los Angeles riots from the 1940s, if you look at the 1965 um, riots and the subsequent um, Turner Commission, and if you look at the, the riots commissions from the mid-1990s, they all do these extensive, extensive kind of data work um, and have lots of meetings and kind of put out lots of data that reinforces everything that we've been saying up here. And then, nine times out of 10, nothing happens. And so one of the, so just, you know, the, the prime example of this is the Kerner Commission, where mm -hmm. out, out of this, you know, there are over 700 riots in a very short period of time in the 1960s. And they have this commission, and two things come out of the, you know, the 60 pages of recommendations from the commission. One, the Fair Housing Act um, passes um, a couple of years, um, a, a couple of months after uh, the commission, but that was already going to happen. And two, the suggestion that there be increased police presence and more autonomy given to the FBI um, is put into effect. But the pairing of that, right, which is that there should be training, that there should be you know, community relations, that you know, actually we need to investigate systemic racism and bias, which is at the root of this, is ignored. So I think to Legina's point, um, you really do have to think about the spectacular Right. Um, as a mobilizing force, and mobilizing urgent force, as opposed to the long-term work of organization, uh, particularly around nonviolent organization. And also thinking about LA um, in 92, there was a billion dollars in property damage, right? And so a lot of the damage that happened, it still hasn't been rebuilt 25 years later. And so you had a lot of people pledging to reinvest in the city and to recoup it and organize it. Hundreds of nonprofits like, showed up saying that we're going to do things. And not a lot happened three or four months later when things had died down and it wasn't in the news anymore. So a billion dollars in property damage, and, and still there wasn't a lot of reaction. So I don't know if like, looking at a, a number like that can get you too far. <laughs> so I'll leave you with a nice bit of uh, pleasant news, not really, which is that um, we're, we're right around the time right, of, of perhaps um, another riot, right? We're 25 years out. Um, if you look at the kind of the spacing, it's, it's roughly every 27, 25, 27 years. Um, and 60% of Los Angeles residents believe that another riot um, will happen in the next uh, five years. So I think um, in part because about 70% of Los Angeles residents, particularly, um, uh, particularly those that live in these areas, overwhelming those that live in these er the affected areas, um, argue that economic inequality has actually gotten worse. Right? And the statistics seem to back that up. Now, on a positive, um, uh, what they've argued is that, uh, one, crime and, and violence has actually declined quite dramatically from the 1990s. Um, and then two, that uh, intra-racial um, relations, but also these kind of multiracial relationships that were once um, incredibly tense, um, have increased uh, for the positive uh, pretty dramatically. 
So with that, uh, we are all out of time. Thank you guys for staying so long and so late. Please, please, please um, make sure that you tell other people about the documentary film and that if you get a chance, watch it. It will air on April 30th on National Geographic Channel. So thank you and have thank a good you. night. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash.